Well, shall we bow our heads in prayer before we turn to the word of God? Heavenly Father, as we turn to you this morning and we turn to your word, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit uh, so that you would guide us as we read uh, your word and as we listen to those things that you've laid upon my heart to share. And I pray that you would hear us, you'd help us to hear your voice speaking to us, that your word would be spirit and life to us. And though perhaps um, some of the uh, trajectory of the life of Israel is not comfortable to read about, Lord, I pray that we would see your faithfulness and know that, Lord, we can rely upon you throughout regardless. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, then, let's open up our Bibles to the book of Judges, uh, the book of Judges, chapter one. I was thinking last night that uh, at the end of Star Wars, it's got a very happy ending. The Empire has been defeated. The Death Star has blown up. And uh, there's Luke Skywalker and Han Solo receiving medals from Princess Leia. And there is peace and everything is at rest. But then when you get to the Empire Strikes Back, what happens? The Empire has risen up and there's full scale war again. And uh, if anything, the rebellion led by Luke Skywalker is, uh, is, um, is running scared and is in a, in a place of, of, uh, of, of subjection. And I couldn't help but feel as if that's a bit like the bridge between Joshua and Judges, because at the end of Joshua, the land is at rest. They've conquered the land. They're in a place of victory and they're starting to enjoy their inheritance. But when we come into the book of Judges, um, it's all scale war again. There's more fighting. And instead of uh, Israel being in the ascendancy, we're seeing that in some respects they're running a bit scared and they're not in such a victorious place as they had once been. If the book of Joshua is about the conquest of Canaan, what we're going to find in the book of Judges is, is, is about the compromise in Canaan that there is, uh, just as there was a rise within the life of Israel through the book of Joshua, we're going to see a fall or a decline in Israel through the book of Judges. And it doesn't take long for compromise to settle in. And there is a pattern of uh, decline that can be observed in a number of places in Scripture. You might remember in the case of the seven churches in the book of Revelation that we looked into recently uh, with Ephesus, we saw that there was a lack of love and decline starts with not loving the Lord. And then when you get to Pergamos, that was the compromising church. And after you stop loving the Lord, compromise comes in with regard to your service to the Lord. Then from Pergamos, we went to the church in Thyatira, which was a corrupt church. And compromise inevitably leads to corruption, moral and spiritual decline. And then you get to the church in Sardis which was the dead church. And that moral and spiritual corruption eventually leads in death. And we see that same pattern of decline at work in Israel as we go through the book of Judges. Joshua had commanded the Israelites, take diligent heed to yourselves that you love the Lord your God. But that love had already begun to grow cold. And this will become evident as we go through the book of Judges because there's a gradual compromise in Israel's conduct. And that compromise uh, will turn into corruption 
and we'll see moral and spiritual decline within Israel. And eventually, as we get towards the end, it will result in civil war and death. That pattern of decline that we saw in the seven churches, we will see in the book of Judges. So instead of uh, 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 being a, a kind of positive uh, book in some respects, it's, it's a bit of a, it's, it's a pattern of the fall of, of Israel. But it, it shows us in many respects the pattern of our own life. Because what would happen in Israel is that they start to go, st descend into moral and spiritual decline. And then God would bring a, a, an outside force to come in to bring the nation into subjection and uh, would become uh, raid, raid the country, at which point the Israelites would cry out to the Lord for deliverance. And God would raise up a judge, a deliverer, to be able to save people out of this oppressive force, this oppressive nation that was coming upon them. And so then Israel would go to a place of ascendancy again. But then after time, they would compromise and that compromise would lead to corruption and it would go downhill again. And another invading army would come in to bring oppression, at which point Israel would cry out to the Lord and the Lord would raise up another judge. And that judge would come and bring deliverance to the children of Israel. So the Israel would be in the ascendancy again. And you find this pattern of up and down, up and down, running throughout the whole book of Judges. And in many respects, that's the pattern of uh, many people's Christian walk, that we find ourselves um, in a good place with the Lord, but then we start to compromise. We stop loving the Lord and we start to decline in our walk and our relationship with him until we find ourselves hitting rock bottom. But we find that when we re reach rock bottom and we cry out to the Lord, the Lord is faithful. He hears our cries and he comes to deliver us and he lifts us up again. And there are ongoing battles in the life of Israel throughout the book of Judges as there are ongoing battles in our life and there are places of victory and there are places of defeat. But throughout that entire history, period of history, God is faithful. He never abandons his children. So if Joshua is about the ascendancy of Israel, Judges in many ways is about the decline of Israel. If Joshua is about the claiming of the promises of God, Judges is about the failure to keep the promises of God. And if Joshua is about the colonization of Canaan, Judges is about the Canaanization of Israel as the Canaan, Canaan influence comes in and starts to affect the lifestyle and the conduct of Judges. This will become more evident as we go on in the weeks uh, to come. Right, let's launch in to uh, chapter one. And uh, I'm going to read the first seven verses to you where it says, Now, after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. So Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me to my allotted territory that we might fight against the Canaanites. And I will likewise go with you to your allotted territory. And Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand and they killed 10,000 men at Bezek. And they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek and fought against him and they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Then Adonai Bezek fled 
and they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes uh, cut off, yeah, with their thumbs and big toes cut off, used to gather their food under my table, as I have done, so God has repaid me. Then they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. So the first battle that we see is the battle for Bezek. And at first glance, everything looks good. We're told the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, who shall be the first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And they're seeking the Lord as planned, and they're relying on God as planned, and they're prepared to fight as planned. Then we get to verse two, and the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. And so the Lord speaks, and Judah is to be his representatives. Victory is promised, it's guaranteed, and all that is required is faith and obedience in God's word. All that is required for victory is faith and obedience in God's word. And really, this is the principle of growth in the Christian walk. It's, this should be the principle of our lives day to by day, to have faith and obedience in God's word, to trust and obey God's word. And I can't say those two words, trust and obey, without quoting the lyrics of John Henry Samus's famous hymn. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. That should be the principle uh, of our Christian life. And it is so simple, so simple to live in victory, so simple to please the Lord. It requires trust and obedience. So is that what we see happening in the life of Judah? Well, we would think so. It seems that they, they went on and went in to fight uh, Bezek. But what we read in verse three, so Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me to my allotted territory that we might fight against the Canaanites and I will likewise go with you to your allotted territory. And Simeon went with him. Now, we know that Simeon's allotment was within the territory of Judah. So he was a natural uh, uh, military aide to, to come alongside him. And, you know, you help me and I'll help you. Sounds like a pretty sound policy in life. But God had said, Judah shall go up. Not Judah and Simeon shall go up. Judah shall go up. So this is small. But a little bit of compromise is starting to creep in right at the beginning. And it really is indicative of greater things that will follow. And so uh, when we get to verse four, we read, Then Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they killed 10,000 men at Bezek. Notice that God only looks at Judah. The scripture only declares that Judah went up. Simeon's contribution is not recorded um, because it was not called for. It wasn't needed. And God brought victory to Judah as he had promised. The Canaanites were defeated and the city of Bezek was captured. 10,000 men were killed in total. Then in verse five, and they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek and fought against him and they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. So this here is effectively the king of Bezek and Adonai uh, is a title. It means Lord, uh, Lord of Bezek. Uh, so we don't actually know what this guy's name was. It could have been Jeff. But he, he's, uh, he, he's, he's Lord of Bezek, and that's a title. And things look good. He's captured. 
But then we read in verses six and seven, then Adonai Bezek fled and they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off, used to gather their food under my table as I have done, so God has repaid me. Then they brought him to Jerusalem and there he died. And so Adonai Bezek hatches a prison break and makes a dash for it. But Judah gives pursuit and captures him. And when they've caught him, they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And uh, this act of mutilation, which is a bit nasty and might seem a bit odd, but without thumbs, a person could not hold a sword. So their military strength came to an end. Last night, uh, I tried to get the children to eat their food uh, by holding knife and fork, but not using their thumbs. And it's very difficult to eat food without your thumbs. You need opposable digits to be able to um, eat your food. And uh, um, without toes, a person could, cannot retain balance and they can't run. So they were incapacitated in that way to fight. And uh, Adonai Bezek couldn't uh, make a break, uh, hatch another prison break. He was kind of <clears throat> disabled in that regard. But, uh, and it's interesting, even today, not having a big toe will disqualify you as an enlistee to join the army. Toes are essential to be part of a fighting force. Who would have thought it? But then we are told they brought him to Jerusalem and there he died. Now, Israel was charged with killing the Canaanites. Keeping a defeated king as a trophy of war was another act of compromise. Deuteronomy 7 verses 1 to 2, um, the Lord said to Moses, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with uh, them, nor show mercy to them. And yet here we see they do not utterly destroy them and uh, uh, that they, they don't obey the commands of God. Now, Adonai Bezek was somewhat stoical about his treatment. Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off, used to gather their food under my table, as I have done, so God has repaid me. Uh, but this, this was an act of humiliation. Unable to properly hold a, a fork and knife, mutilated kings were forced to act like dogs, gathering scraps from under the king's table. And for Israel to treat their defeated foe like this showed an absence of compassion and the presence of, of cruelty to some degree. But what's more significant is the king said he'd done this to other people himself. It was a Canaanite practice to cut off thumbs and toes. And here was Israel adopting a Canaanite practice by cutting off this king's fingers, sorry, thumbs and toes. And so by adopting a Canaanite practice in victory, further compromise was starting to come in. So Judah compromised by forming an alliance with Simeon, by sparing the life of Adonai Bezek, and by mutilating Adonai Bezek. And the lesson for us is simple. We should not compromise with the commands of God, even in the smallest detail. And we should not adapt the way that we live to adopt or embrace the world's philosophy or behavior in any area. We are to be a holy people, distinct and separate from the way that the world conducts itself. As we read on verses eight to 10, it says, now the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem and took it. 
they struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterwards, the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who dwelt in the mountains and in the south in the lowland. Then Judah went against the Canaanites who dwelt in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kirjath Arba, and they killed Shishai, Ahiman, and Talmai. Now Judah continues its military campaign. They fought and they captured Jerusalem. However, Jerusalem was in the territory of Benjamin. Uh, so Judah did not occupy it because it was not for them to occupy. Now later on in this chapter, we'll see that Benjamin could not retain Bethlehem. And so it fell back into the control of the Jebusites once more, and they rebuilt it and occupied it until the days of David. Now, this is interesting. Judah could uh, de defeat and capture Jerusalem, but, Bethlehem, uh, but um, the Benjamites could not defeat and retain. Um, I'm not saying Bethlehem, it's, it's Jerusalem. I've fallen over my words there. <laughs> Judah could attack and capture Jerusalem, but the Benjamites could not keep and retain Jerusalem. And this speaks to the future monarchy and illustrates how Judah is superior to Benjamin. King Saul would come from the tribe of Benjamin, but he could not defeat the Canaanites. King David would come from Judah, but he could defeat the Canaanites. And it's showing the superiority of Judah over Benjamin and how it is right that the king should come from Judah and not from Benjamin. I hope that makes sense. Anyway, in verse nine, we see the conquering army of Judah press into the remaining territory. They go into the mountains. That's the north. They go to the Negev. That's in the south. And then they go in the lowlands, which is the west. So they're really pressing forward. And uh, in, in verse 10, we see three names that should be familiar to us. The names of um, Shishai, Ahiman and Talmai. These were mentioned in Joshua 15, verses 13 to 14. They are the three sons of Anak. They're giants who were killed by Caleb. So Caleb was part of the tribe of Judah. And so this is retreading some of the history already told to us in the book of Joshua. And it indicates that Caleb was active in some of these conflicts recorded in the book of Judges. Next, we come to the battle for Debir, verses 11 to 15, where it reads, from there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kirjath Sefer. Then Caleb said, he who attacks Kirjath Sefer and takes it to him, I will give my daughter Achsar as wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So he gave him his daughter, Aksara's wife. Now it was so when she came to him that she urged him to task her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey and Caleb said to her, what do you wish? So she said to him, give me a blessing. Since you have given me land in the south, give me also springs of water. Then Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower Springs. Again, this is retreading territory that we've already visited in the book of Joshua. But what we really see here is the love and godly oversight of a father towards his daughter. He wants to ensure that his daughter makes a good match. And really, that should be the responsibility and the conduct of all Christian fathers. They should make sure that their daughters make a good match in husbands. 
So what he does is he devises a scheme by saying whoever is able to attack and conquer Debir wins the, wife, uh, the hand of my, my daughter. And through this scheme, he ensures the person whom she marries is an Israelite and not a Canaanite. And that's always a good um, benchmark for marriage to make sure you marry a believer and not an unbeliever. Uh, he ensures the person whom she marries is a man of faith who has the boldness to move out in the promises of God. He ensures that the person she marries is a man of strength, which is able to defend and protect his daughter. And he ensures the person who marries his daughter is a man after his own heart, who is bold and courageous and zealous for God. And the test is whether he's able to attack and defeat the city of Debir. And the victor is Othniel, Caleb's nephew. Uh, Aksar is his uh, cousin. So these two cousins married, he wins the hand of Aksar. And Othniel's spiritual and moral, moral character is proven in that he is the first of the judges that delivers Israel. And we'll see his story in more detail in Judges 3 verses 7 to 11. And as we move through the book of Judges, it's interesting. We will see a decline. Uh, we will see a decline in the Judges. We'll see a decline in Israel. And in many respects, Othniel is the best of the Judges. But Aksar, Caleb's daughter and Othniel's wife, shows she has some of the boldness as her husband and her father by asking her father for springs in the south and the Negev. And Caleb grants her request. So it seems that Othniel and Aksar are well matched. They're both bold, they're both courageous, they're both zealous, and they're both people of faith. And now they have a nice ranch with springs of water and Aksar is loved, provided for, and well protected. Aksar is loved, provided for, and well protected. And whenever there is a moral and spiritual decline in society, as there will be in Israel, there is a decline in the way that women are treated by society. They are not loved, but used. They are not provided for, but have to be self-sufficient. They're not protected, but become more vulnerable. And we see this decline in the way that women are treated in Israel throughout the book of Judges. Think of Jephthah's daughter, she becomes vulnerable. Think of Deborah, she has to become self-sufficient. Think of Samson and his lack of love for women. And think of the Levite and the treatment of his concubine whom he used. As there is moral decline in a society, as there was moral decline in Israel, so that uh, the way that women are treated declines as well. They're not loved, provided for, or well protected as they would be in a more godly society. Conversely, whenever God is revered and the word of God is obeyed in society, women are elevated, they are loved and provided for, women are respected, protected and cared for. Going on, we read about pressing into further territory in verses 16 to 20, where we read, now the children of the Kenites, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the south near Arad, and they went and dwelt among the people. Just to pause there for a second. Um, these Kenites, uh, Moses' father-in-law, uh, um, 
And the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms. So these were the Midian. This is a Midianite family. And uh, the Midianites would later attack Israel in the days of Gideon. But here is a branch of the Midianites who actually defect to Israel and come into the family of God. They come to Israel as, as children of faith. And we shall revisit these Kenites in Judges chapter 4. So this is kind of a bit of a, an introduction to the Kenites and we'll pick them up a bit more in the future. But moving on to verse 17. And Judah went with his brother Simeon and they attacked the Canaanites who inhabited in Zephath and utterly destroyed it. Good. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Also Judah took Gaza with its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, Ekron with its territory. And so the Lord was with Judah and they drove out the inhabitants of the mountains, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. And they gave Hebron to Caleb, as Moses had said, then he expelled from there the three sons of Anak. So first of all, in verse 17, we read of uh, the conquest of Hormah and uh, Simeon's name is mentioned uh, again for uh, because uh, Hormah would, is, is actually in Simeon's territory, so it would become um, Simeon's in, inheritance. Then in verse 18, we read about the conquest of Gazga, Ashkelon, and Ekron. So as Judah secures these uh, next three cities, which was occupied by the Canaanites, these names might ring a bell with you, because later on in scripture, this will become Philistine territory. The Philistines hadn't quite arrived in the land at this time, but they weren't far away. They would arrive by sea and they would take over these cities of Gaza, Ashkelon and Ekron. So this is not a permanent victory for Judah. And uh, the Philistines would invade, occupy these cities. And from there, they would put gang raids into the rest of Israel, attack and steal. And God will raise up Shamgar, a judge, and Samson, a judge, to deliver Israel from uh, the Philistines. So again, this is laying kind of background information that will be picked up later on in the book of Judah. But Judah isn't uh, constantly operating in victory. In verse 19, we see that they are unable to subdue the lowland due to the occupants having iron chariots. So it's almost as if um, Judah gets to the place and they see these iron chariots and they think, that's too, too much for us. The, the, this force is too great for us to overcome. Now, it begs the question, were the people of the lowlands really too strong for Judah? Here, I believe Judah compromised. Their faith faltered. Judah had sufficient faith when the odds were in their favour, but they had insufficient faith when the odds were against them. If I can cast your memory all the way back to Joshua 11, in verse 6, it says, The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid because of them. For tomorrow, about this time, I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring the horses and burn their chariots with fire. God had guaranteed Joshua that he would overcome iron chariots. And in verse 9 of Joshua 11, we read, So Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. What was required to defeat these uh, Canaanites in the lowlands was not superior strength, but superior faith. And that is true for us in our Christian walk. 
If we're to have victory and to move forward in our faith, then we need to have a superior faith. Remember, trust and obey. Look with the eyes of faith, not with the eyes of uh, humanity. And then in verse 20, not everyone was in decline, not everybody was in defeat. Here we see Galeb operating in victory. He moves forward with faith and courage and he is able to gain Hebron. The national trend was of a compromise, but there were individual examples of victorious living. Now, as we carry on to the final section, verses 21 to 36, we'll see the continuing conquest of Israel and the continuing compromise of Israel in the various other tribes. We've dealt with Judah. Now let's look at Benjamin in verse 21. But the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem. So the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Here we see the compromise and failure within the tribe of Benjamin, an inability to secure victory over the Jebusites, which meant Jerusalem will remain in Canaanite hands until the time of King David. We read there, so the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin. Benjamin lived in tandem with the Jebusites, They're, and they lived with a perpetual reminder of defeat, and they tolerated the enemy in their lives. And this cohabitation with the Jebusites would bring a moral, moral and spiritual decline in Benjamin, a corruption that would be the, which would eventually result in a civil war that we'll see in Judges chapter 20 and the near annihilation of Benjamin. Remember that path of decline, compromise to corruption to death. That is the path that Benjamin is heading on right here by cohabitating with these Jebusites. And it's a warning with us about our relationship with the world and with sin. If we compromise, and it might be just in a small matter, it will grow and it will advance its influence in our lives and it will bring corruption and it will bring death in our lives. That is not what God had for Israel and it's not what God has for us. Now in verses 22 to 26, we see the tribes of Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim, where we read, and the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel and the Lord was with them. So the house of Joseph sent men to spy out Bethel and the name of the city was formerly Luz. And when the spies saw a man coming out of the city, they said to him, please show us the entrance to the city. So, and we will show you mercy. So he showed them the entrance to the city and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites, built a city and called its name Luz, which is its name to this day. So here's Joseph, a, a reference to the two half tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim, and they fought together as one, it would seem. And uh, as directed by the Lord, they took Bethel. And you might think, praise God, here we have two tribes who didn't compromise. But actually, within this, there are two failures, two compromise hidden within this one victory. The first is Bethel was in the territory of Benjamin. And as Benjamin was unable to take Jerusalem and Judah had to do the dirty work, so Benjamin was unable to take Bethel. And so Joseph had to do the dirty work. And it highlights the failure and compromise of Benjamin again. And uh, 
it's interesting. Uh, all, all the evidence and all the clues are that Judges was written during the early reign of David. It's almost like a bit of propaganda proving why King Saul was unworthy of the kingship because he was from the tribe of Benjamin. He failed to walk in the promises of God, just like his tribe did, whereas Judah were more victorious. The second failure is they let a man go. They did not utterly destroy all the Canaanites as they were commanded by God. But this was a man, this man was an asset, you might argue. They were true to, the, to him, they, were, they, they honoured him. And he was our man in Luz, just as Rahab was our woman in Jericho. How can there be compromise in this? Well, let's think carefully. If God directed Joseph to attack Luz, then God would equip Joseph with all it required to defeat Luz. They did not need an inside man because God was their inside man. Remember with Rahab, she turned to the Lord in faith. She became an ancestor of Jesus. But this man was a pagan and he went to a pagan people, the Hittites who occupied uh, Western Turkey, no, Eastern Turkey, I beg your pardon. And, uh, and there built a new city. And the name of that city was Luz as well. He was unchanged and he continued in his sin. He just moved his sin. He shifted his sin to a different area. Because Joseph did not fully obey God and they compromised, there was an undealt with element in their lives and that element built a new stronghold elsewhere. An undealt with sin in our lives, though dealt with a huge blow at the time of salvation, will build a new stronghold in our lives. It will just shift its strategy and exert its influence somewhere else in our lives. Again, compromise leads to corruption. Reading on about Joseph, uh, we read about Manasseh and Ephraim in verses 27 to 29, where it says, however, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. And it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites under tribute, but did not completely drive them out. And nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Giza. So the Canaanites dwelt in Giza among them. Here we see further compromise on the part of the half tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim. They did not defeat the Canaanites. The Canaanites were stubborn. They wanted to stay. And sin is stubborn. The world is stubborn. It continues to try to exert its influence. It will not die. And there is a constant battle there. And so what they did was they forced the Canaanites to pay tribute. They allowed them to farm the land so long as they got a cut. They could continue living as long as they cut wood and brought them water. And really, this is the pattern of failure and compromise that will permeate the entire nation. A pattern where they are reconciling themselves with sinful elements, with ungodly elements. And it's so easy for us to do that, to reconcile ourselves with worldly elements in our lives. Everybody else does it, so it's okay for us. We are not to live by the world's standards. We are to live by the standards laid out for us by the word of God. And I know it's not easy. 
It certainly wasn't easy for Israel. And there was a wrestle and there is a battle there. But with faith and obedience, it can be accomplished. Let's move on to Zebulun, verse 30. Nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalol. So the Canaanites dwelt among them and were put under tribute. So here we see the compromise on the part of Zebulun. They follow the model of Joseph. We have, we have the land. We want an easy life, they might have said. That tribe has forced the Canaanites to tribute. Why don't we? And there is a danger within Christian circles. And because you might think that your compromise is a small thing and it affects only you and your relationship with God. But other Christians are always looking on. Other Christians always see the way that you behave and the way that you conduct yourself will have uh, an insidious effect uh, as it influences other Christians in as much as if you compromise, it can give permission to other Christians to compromise. If you allow ungodly elements in your life, it can give uh, permission for other Christians to allow ungodly elements into their lives. Remember, you are not only serving the Lord, you are serving your brothers and sisters in Christ, or are you disserving your brothers and sisters in Christ? I recall a time when I was struggling with smoking, trying to give up. I knew it was something I, I shouldn't do, um, but it's not easy giving up smoking. It's an addiction. And at some point I discovered that the great theologian and, and Bible teacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a smoker his whole life. And just that one um, point of information was, was a, made, made the whole process of giving up smoking so much harder. If such a respected Christian was a smoker, then what was wrong with me being a smoker? And instead of following what the Lord was directing me to do, I found a, a way to compromise upon the matter and it made the whole process harder. Our influence has a direct effect upon our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's move on to the tribe of Asher, verses 31 to 32. Nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko, or the inhabitants of Sidon, or of Ahalab, or Akzib, Helba, Afik, or Rehob. So the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. So here we see the compromise on the part of the tribe of Asher, they weren't even able to bring the Canaanites into tribute. Their neighboring tribe compromised to one degree, and this is a small thing, and it was a small thing to compromise one degree more. With Zebulun, the Canaanites dwelt among them, i.e., Zebulun had the upper hand, but with Asher, the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites, i.e., the Canaanites had the upper hand. The Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites. And so we see again, compromise getting worse and worse. Canaanites exerting its influence, having the upper hand. Let's move on to Naphtali, verse 33. Nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, for they dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath were put under tribute to them. So here we see the compromise on the part of the tribe of Naphtali. Like Asher, they dwelt among the Canaanites, although they did manage to gain the upper hand in a couple of cities. But the influence of the Canaanites 
is getting stronger. And it's almost as if the further north you get, the stronger the Canaanite influence gets. And then finally, we get to Dan in verses 34 to 36, where it says, and the Amorites forced the children of Dan, the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains, for they would not allow them to come down to the valley. And the Amorites were determined to dwell in Mount Heres, in Ajalon, and in Shalbim. Yet when the hand of the house of Joseph became stronger, they were put under tribute. Now the boundary of the Amorites was from the ascent of Akrabim, from Sela and upward. So here we see the failure on the part of the tribe of Dan. Instead of moving forward in faith and destroying the Canaanites, the Canaanites were moving forward and forced Dan back into the mountains. Eventually, Dan will migrate further north, and we'll see that later on in the book of Judges. And what will happen is Ephraim will claim the Danite territory, and it will be Ephraim that will force the Canaanites to pay tribute. That is what has been spoken of here in these verses. But Dan really is the weakest of the tribes, followed by Benjamin. Who is calling the shots here, Dan or Canaan? Clearly, Canaan is calling the shots. And if you allow areas of your life to go undealt with, if you begin to compromise, you will rapidly find sin pushing you around and controlling you as the Canaanites pushed around and controlled Dan. Dan experienced a similar problem to some of the other tribes. The Canaanites occupied the lowlands and the valleys and they forced the Israelites to live in the mountains. Now this had two problems. The most fertile land was to be found in the valleys. Thus the Canaanites were in more productive, uh, productive and fertile soil than the Israelites. So this would give the impression of the, that the gods of the Canaanites were greater than the God of Israel because the Canaanites had a better crop and better yield than the Israelites. This in turn would create a spiritual seduction to the Israelites. If better crops came from worshipping the Canaanite idols, maybe we should worship them as well. This is the seduction of money through uh, productivity. Remember, it was an agricultural economy that was operating in Israel at this time. So whoever had the best crops was the richer people. The second seduction, of course, would be that uh, um, Israel had to contend with was that with Canaanites left in the land, Canaanite worship continued. And a, a staple part of Canaanite worship was temple prostitution, which was in sharp contrast to the sexual strictness drawn from the Mosaic law. So we see two perennial temptations and seductions that Israel have to deal with, sex and money, coming from the Canaanites in there. And these are very strong influences that uh, we have to deal with in today's society as well, all because the Canaanites were not dealt with. And thus the seduction, the compromise and the corruption will rise and we'll see these influences taking hold further on through the book of Judges. So what we have seen this morning is uh, nine, uh, uh, nine God-appointed tribes of Israel with the promises of God behind them, falter in their faith and obedience. Consequently, Canaanite strongholds remain firmly entrenched in the land and the Israelites' enjoyment of salvation and freedom was restricted. Just as if we allow strongholds in our lives, 
of sin, we, it will restrict our enjoyment of salvation and freedom. We also saw Canaanite presence remained firmly entrenched in the land, and the Israelites developed relationships with those who should be utterly destroyed. And if we allow sin in our lives, then we'll develop a relationship with that sin and it will lead to uh, corruption. And finally, we saw Canaanite idolatry remain firmly entrenched in the land and the Israelites faced increased temptation toward apostasy. And if we allow Canaanites in our lives, we'll find ourselves tempted toward apostasy as well. Now, we all falter in our faith. We wouldn't be human if we didn't. But God remained faithful to Israel and to his promises throughout this period of time and history. Whenever Israel would cry out to the Lord, the Lord was there, ready to deliver them. And even though we falter in our faith, God remains faithful to us. He will not let us go. It's never too late to fight the Canaanites in your life. The history book for Israel is written and recorded in the book of Judges. But the history book for your life is not yet finished. Pick up your sword, choose to serve the Lord, and he will give you victory. Amen. Father God, we thank you for these things that we've seen in the book of Judges. Help us to be those who have the courage not to compromise with sin and with the world, but help us to be those who trust and obey you, trusting in your promises with a full faith that you'll give us the victory that we need. In Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>